0: To uh, continue thinking about the covenant, we last week talked about marriage, gender, and church membership, and uh, helping us think through some constitutional changes that we want to suggest. So in Scripture, uh, this is a good starting place in Romans chapter number twelve to remind us what a church is, because that's what we're really talking about over the this week, next week. We're going to also continue thinking about the church covenant, what it says, why it's important, and what the Bible says a church is, really. So in Romans 12, the Bible says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the understanding that comes to us about what it means to be a congregation, a community. God, you've given us all these different ways of thinking, but the we know that, that we belong to each other and that that has meaning and it's powerful. So we pray that as we try to live it out among each other, that we'll uh, come to understand how important promises that we make are and How important it is to fulfill our uh, vows and live our uh, promises out to each other in relationship to you and who you are to us, Lord. So we pray that you'll speak to us, and I pray that you help me, Lord, as I uh, share your truth this morning. I pray that you'll give me your unction. God, fill me with your spirit. Use my words. May uh, it come from you, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen the church in north america of course has a um a history when we think about how we belong to it i've talked at times before about the free church movement and the fact that most um congregations like this one would have some connection to that and i'll explain more about that in a little bit but in 1649 a group of pastors were talking among themselves about like what is it that gives a church distinction what how do we know what a church is? And one of the things they talked about was faith. They said churches are groups of people who have faith, but they also said, well, faith is invisible. And so as they furthered their congregation or conversation, they talked about covenanting. Covenanting that there were agreements that human beings made in relationship to each other and their promises were the strength of community. And last week we touched on that as we talked about marriage. We said the first thing that uh, people do is that they stand up before God and witnesses and they hold forth their promises to one another. And those promises to to me, to my understanding in my own life as a married person are what I'm working back to all the time. I'm fleshing out the promise that I made to this person in the exchanging of vows And so that was the conclusion that these uh, pastors had when they said, well, here's how a church's uh, uh, strengthening aspect of it. And, of course, anything that a church commits to ought to be first biblical, right? It begins with the Bible. So all the promises that churches make among, the members make among themselves are rooted in our understanding of God's character as he's shown it to us in Scripture. And so, a covenant frames mutual commitments to Christians in the local church. That's what a covenant does. And they are biblical behaviors. When we think about these things, that's what you'll see. We're talking about agreements that are biblical. And do we do these things perfectly? Of course not, because we're not perfect people. But they show us what we aspire to. They show us what we uh, are, are about I, I like this saying that someone, I don't know who, I saw it long ago, said, if we aim at nothing, we'll hit it every time, right? If you don't have any goals, well, it's easy to feel successful, but we should have goals and we should have behaviors that we've committed to with each other that outline our fellowship and how we are together. they are targets for which we are aiming. That's what we're going to look at. And so we're going to look closely this week and next at the nature of being the church with the goal of understanding and practicing these values in our relationships with our church family. So if we never talk about this, we don't know what's expected. So we're communicating expectations. We're communicating agreements and, and our goals relationally. And so one of the things that we did differently is add a preamble in the um. Uh, constitution and bylaws and uh, I'll read you what it says but basically I think I included it here too but the first idea I want to think about is that this preamble helps us understand the importance of regenerate church membership in other words to be a member of a church we understand the Bible to teach that you must be converted you must be born again and so that's uh, kind of the strength in this statement that says having as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him and having been baptized upon the profession of our faith in the name of the Father and the Son the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully commit to this covenant with each other. So that's the framing of all the things that come afterward. It says there's a beginning point for church membership, and it is in being born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, truly I say to you, you must be born again. And, of course, it was confusing to him. He's like, how can a man be born a second time? Can he go again into his mother's womb? He, Of course, he's thinking extremely literally about this, and Jesus says To him, basically, there is a mystery that's known as the second birth, regeneration, coming into a relationship with uh, God by faith. The the, uh, book of Romans says in Romans 8, 9 that if we don't have the spirit, it says we do not belong to God. So the person who is born from above receives The gift of the Holy Spirit, that's regeneration. God taking an old dead person and giving them life. The Bible says, but you were dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made alive. So that's the uh, powerful reality for the Christian, right? The thing that makes me unique now is that God took me out of my dead uh, to God. Way of living and made me alive to God, and He did it, and it's the miracle of conversion, regeneration, and so in the development of church history, people gave their lives for the idea that only regenerate uh, persons could be members of churches. Do you do you hear what I said? In the history of the church. People gave their lives for the idea that only regenerate people could be part of churches. They literally were martyred, and you, and we have to understand history to know why that was so. In the, if you remember, and you probably don't, these kinds of facts from history because you probably were looking out the window or tuned out or something like me, But in history, the Holy Roman Empire, there was a time in Europe when Spain, Germany, France, these countries were all one big conglomerate called the Holy Roman Empire. And Catholicism held sway over all of it for a long, long time. And to be born was to be part of the church. If you were born historically into these nations that made up the Holy Roman Empire, you automatically were a citizen of both the nation and the church. They uh, would christen babies, and babies who didn't know their left hand from their right were accepted into the church. And so the church functioned in a completely different way. In a sense, it was the christianity that everybody uh, held to i was wondering what was that if that's a bug kill it immediately but it was not a bug there was something rolling around on the floor i'm sorry but the 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 idea was that c- cultural uh, it was a sort of a cultural christianity it w- it wasn't personal it might become that for individuals. It might become personal. It wasn't impossible to really know God or know God in a in a transformational way in that system, but it was very difficult. And the idea was not present that the church actually was comprised of born again people. And so that was a development that the the idea of the free church movement or congregationalism was. The, you, what were you free of? You were free from this uh, idea that the church and the state were the same thing. That's what they were free from. They were free from the idea that to be born was to be born into the kingdom of God. There was a di- distinction that they, that the reformers were making historically. So you get to people like uh, Martin Luther, Calvin, some of the, those, um, what we would consider the people who... Uh, in the in the fifteen hundreds, were bringing the church back to a biblical understanding of congregationalism and what it meant, what the disciples practiced actually uh, with some of those folks. So, reform thinking said that the church was uh, different than the state, and then you get people even here, like uh, sometimes. Uh, Christians look with disdain on Jefferson's idea of the separation of church and state, but actually that's a very healthy idea, the idea that the church is different than the state, because if you don't have that, then the, the law of man, which is different than the law of God and the rule and way of God can begin to influence the practice of church. And so actually what you want is separation of church and state in the sense that the church itself functions under scripture. And we realize that culture ought to be influenced by it, but the state is separate from it. And within a a country like ours, what you really want is religious liberty. You want freedom to worship according to conscience. And then we have the opportunity to be free to evangelize people to Christ like everybody else can. So they, uh, what happened in time is that the Holy Roman Empire broke apart into nation states. And it happened about the same time, coincidentally, that the printing press, Gutenberg, made uh, literacy spike. And people began to read for themselves. And they began to hear the gospel that the apostles were preaching. And they began to be able to read the Bible for themselves which, by the way, is always really helpful to be able to read the Bible for yourself. They read the Bible for themselves and they came to the conclusion that really what you found in Scripture is the gospel being proclaimed to people, them responding to the gospel, and that those were the people that made up the church. It was people in whom the Spirit of God came to live. And so when we think about this preamble, it's really stating and restating for us exactly what we find in Scripture and in the solid practice of Christians in history is that they believed in a regenerate church. They believed that the church is really actually only made up of people in whom the Spirit of God has come to live. And so it consists of people who have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, is the way that it's put in Colossians chapter 113. The church is a confessing body of Christians. When we think, what is a church? If you had to sit down and sketch out your own bullet points, well, one thing we know that it is is a group of confessing Christians, the people that are actually. Part of the church are those who by their own, as an aspect of their own will have said Jesus is Lord. You said that to become a part of the actual family of Christ because nobody becomes part of his family who doesn't acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and doesn't uh, trust him as their master and the one who forgave their sins. You don't have to be a Christian to attend a church gathering. But in fact, church members confess their faith and allegiance to Jesus. So anybody can attend a church gathering. In fact, you, we want people who do not yet know Jesus to attend our gathering. But we say those that the church itself, the belonging to the, the family under its covenant is exclusively for those who have given evidence by confession, in, in the practice of their life, that they are born again. So that's the the idea that's expressed, that it's important for us to hold to. Of course, when as I've looked through new member stuff and taught it myself, it's expressed there as well, uh, that that's what it means to be a member in a congregation. So the indwelling spirit of Christ is the Uh, resource that God gave to us the person who inhabits uh, and, and dwells us who gives us the strength to follow the principles that are outlined in this covenant and in scripture if we don't have the spirit we aren't even able to be the church that's the important reality to understand if the spirit of God doesn't live in a person they are only a natural person According to the Bible, the only spiritual uh, minded person is the one in whom the Spirit of God has come to make his home. So I hope that's uh, clear. so this is the covenant itself, what it says four big picture things that and we're only going to look at two of them this week because they have content you know beneath them to explain what they mean. I will protect the unity of the church and this is uh, the scripture for that is Romans chapter. 14 verse 19, and there are some ways that we think about, well, how do I, as a member, a confessing Christian in relationship to others, what is it that I do, what am I agreeing to that help me to live this out? How do I protect the unity of the church? Well, one of the ways is by acting in love toward other members. Acting in love toward other members. So, part of my what I've agreed to, this is why it's important to say it and to talk about it when people become part of our congregation, and then to think about it in ways like we're doing now, is that we're this is how you affect unity. That I practice love in my relationship to the people that I'm a, that are part of this church family. I read this quote by Martin Lloyd Jones. Famous preacher from another generation. He says, it does not matter how gifted you are if you are difficult to get along with. Your gifts are of no value. Burn. (laughs) I would say, okay, well that's hyperbole. He says, it doesn't matter how gifted you are if you're hard to get along with. Your gifts are of no value. What I would say is, and he probably wouldn't want me softening his words, but I would say it it makes your gifts less likely to be useful to those around you if you're prickly and hard to get along with. If you're not if you make it hard for people. We're supposed to be approachable, loving, and so when we are that way, of course it makes us a way for our gifts to be more useful uh, uh, in the fellowship with each other. God can use curmudgeons, I think. some. You know what a curmudgeon is? It's like the older I get, the more I am one, I think. I'm like, this just happens to people as we get older. Sometimes we narrow into like these really, you know, convictions that like we just don't have enough grace in our personality. Sometimes God could use a curmudgeon. It's a lot easier, though, if we keep a soft heart for God to use us in relationship to each other. John Ortberg wrote a book called People Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. I always like the title of that book. I also think it's true. In it he says that people are like porcupines. He says we have good points but we're hard to get close to. I like, yeah, that's true. A non-southerner he he said went to a restaurant to order uh, and saw grits on the menu and this person asked the waitress, what's a grit? And the waitress was like, well, honey, they're not, they're not by themselves. You know, they don't come by themselves. So it's the same with Christians, right? We, are, we, are, we don't come by ourselves. We're supposed to be linked together in community with others, and we flourish in community. But as we're together, it's important for us to act in love toward one another. And then also we affect unity. I said when I became a member of this church, I agree to try to help this church to be united. And one of the ways that we do that is by avoiding or refusing to gossip. Refusing to gossip. So let's think about what gossip is, why it's so detrimental, why it's important enough to say we won't do it. Because it subverts community. It subverts community is why we we say it's important not to do it. And in community, we are uh, hoping to, well, the word itself is always instructive. It has, like, the idea of common and union, that, like, there's a sharing that happens, and gossip is uh, corrosive to that. So we subvert community by talking about people rather than talking to people. That's gossip. Gossip is talking about people and not talking to people. Gossip is a way of deliberately exploiting and leveraging another person's problem for the sake of thrills. That's what it is. Exploiting another person's weakness for the sake of a thrill for what you can get out of it. And people get something out of it, they wouldn't do it. Gossip is harmful because it trivializes another person who's been made in God's image. It treats people as entertainment. That's why it's harmful. Everyone uh, is worthy of dignity and respect. Every person that you meet. It's like today. I was thinking about today. I knew a lot of people were going to be away for various reasons, because mostly they had told me that they wouldn't be here today. And and I was thinking about that. How much, uh, you you know, how often it is for pastors that your ego gets so wrapped up in like uh, who's there and stuff like that. But the truth is, if anybody's there, that person has dignity and worth because they're created in the image of God. And so huge potential is always present, no matter the size of the group that's, that's gathered. When we think about what, why gossip is so detrimental, it's because it doesn't take into consideration that the object of gossip, the person we're gossiping about, has dignity and is created in the image of God. And we're just using them as fodder for entertainment. How do I know if my speech is gossip? Well, intent, not content, determines that. Intent, not content. We think, well, I said it, it was true. Well, what was your intent? It's not whether the content was true, it's what's your intent. Am I trying to make someone else look bad so I feel good? That's what gossip is. So we think about how do we help unity to be the rule among ourselves. Well this is what was said in the past in our covenant and which we're repeating and saying we just want to affirm this as our foundational idea. Then by following the leaders. How do we how do we affect unity by following the leaders? And Hebrews 13:17 talks about um honoring those that God appoints to lead among us so that as they lead, it can be a joy and not a grief, is the way that it puts it. You want your leader to experience leaders. Their uh, spiritual leadership is joy and not a grief, it says. So leading is stressful. It's stressful. I had no idea how much your, your life gets tangled up in it and how hard it is to shut it off when it uh, there are a lot of negatives and it's uh, you know of course a lot of people's jobs are difficult. Healthy leaders find outlets for their stress, like gardening or cultivating their lawn. A friend of mine said if Moses had lived in a subdivision, he probably would have had the most pristine lawn in the whole subdivision. You know, if you're a leader then it's you have to find ways to cultivate a healthy life. You know, uh, I do woodworking. I build things. And I've joked before that, the you know, the reason that's a good thing for me to have in my life is because at some point out here I put the last coat of paint on it or I drive the last nail and I go, voila, you know, that's done now. Uh, but spiritual... Formation is open-ended and continuous, and there's never a place where you the last thing is done. It has satisfaction. It's rewarding, and, and, but it's different. And so most leaders will find something in their life that they can, uh, they can point to that helps them have a healthy diversion. The text indicates that spiritual leaders will give an account of themselves to God. Your leader, the pastor, the elders, those that are uh, commissioned to to lead by God will give an account of themselves. You remember how James talked about, he says, not many of you should become teachers because you'll be held to uh, a greater condemnation, he says, or a higher standard of uh, discernment and judgment in the the end. So the leader uh, will be judged in his ministry in his life will be observed with close scrutiny, God says in the Bible. Those that serve should see that a leader's ministry is a joy and not a grief. That's the uh, people in a congregation. You should see that the leader's experience is a joy and not a grief, it says in the Bible. So how do you do that, I, I wonder? I can tell you what's meaningful to me When I think about how you could make my life a joy, and not a grief, or the life of other elders and leaders, by being people who pray. How do you make your leader's uh, life joy, not grief? By praying, by having a commitment to being a person who prays. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. We'll talk about it a little more in this message. But if, I, if you, I've heard people say, if you want a better leader, pray for the one you have. Have you ever heard that? If you want a better leader, pray for the one you have. I guarantee you one thing. I'm always appreciative of people that pray for me. I had a friend named Bob Tootin who's with the Lord now, and he moved away. He was a deacon at a church I uh, was pastor of before, and um, Bob died of COVID. He was one of the first people that I knew that died of COVID but um, he would often text me and tell me, I'm praying for you. I pray for you every day. And how much that meant to me to know that this friend who's now with Jesus, you know, remembered me in prayer. Not just me, but just prayer, period. Being people who pray. You can make a leader's service joy, not grief, by being committed to maturing as a disciple. How do you how do you make their life a joy, not a grief? By being committed to growing as a disciple. That's the essence of following Jesus. Knowing truth helps but internalizing it so that it becomes part of your personality is the real goal. Not enough just to know things, but also taking it into yourself and practicing it in all the things that happen in your life. That's really what discipleship is. It's practicing it in in our life. Being thoughtful, faithful, humble, approachable, teachable, consistent, open, determined, loyal, receptive. All of those make the task of leading for leaders a joy and not a grief. When people are like that, thoughtful, faithful, humble, approachable, teachable, Consistent, open, determined, loyal. And I don't mean blind loyalty where uh, you could be abused because people get abused in spiritual community by leaders. I don't mean that, but I mean the kind of loyalty that's reasonable uh, toward someone who who leads. Anybody can be a critic, but criticism isn't always the same thing as care. And we hear about constructive criticism. Well, we need that you know, and and leaders need to be able to listen to criticism, but sometimes criticism is caring that has gone sour. It's gone sour. Encouragement and assistance are preferable, if you ask me, like, what would it take to make your leadership a joy and not a grief? I would say encouragement, assistance. At my old office, I had a cork board that had cards on it. They were cards that people had sent to me that were like thank you for being there for this or that and you know sometimes all that it took to for me to be encouraged was to look at my bulletin board of thank you notes that had come to me from people at times so I'm not saying to you that like it's one way because I want to be an encourager too you know, but if you think, well, how do you make a leader's uh, life a joy and not grief? Sometimes just telling them, hey, you're doing a good job. Thank you is a very meaningful way that you, you do that. And assistance. Sometimes, um, you know, people can look around and go, what a mess. This doesn't seem to be going very well. But a good question to ask is, how can I help, <laughs> you know? This seems like it's a struggle. What can I do to help? How can I show up and make it better? Because, again, you know, anybody can be a critic. But what's helpful is encouragement and assistance to say, okay, I can see that there's a weakness here. What maybe God is saying to you, you roll into that and make it better. You become a part of the answer. All right, so this is... The first part of the covenant that we're talking about, the second part this week, and the, uh, there are only two parts, is I will share in the spiritual responsibilities of the church. And that dovetails really nicely into what we were just uh, talking about. How are we going to do that? One, by praying for its growth. How do I uh, help? What are? How do I share in the spiritual responsibilities of the church? By praying its growth so we were just talking about that why prayer matters so much why do you need to pray why do I need to pray because prayer interrupts us for one thing you need to be interrupted sometimes you need to be made and so do I just to slow down and, and to listen to God so prayer interrupts us Oswald Chambers we have quoted him before who's considered in Christian history an expert in prayer he says, prayer doesn't prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Sometimes we think we pray to get ready. He says, prayer is the work. It's the, it's the thing that is where God is showing up. Prayer, prayer is difficult because it requires us to turn away from ourselves and our busyness. That's why we don't pray as we should. Prayer disrupts our frenetic, crazed performance long enough to hopefully dethrone us and get our eyes on the Lord. And we need that. Spiritual community made alive by prayer is the ideal. This is what God wants. God wants spiritual community made alive by prayer. So much of our frustration, and this is probably confession too, probably comes from depending on our flesh and our ingenuity. we got strategies and plans and we know how, but we're f- f- totally frustrated. Why? Because we're not appropriating God's spirit through prayer. Prayer. Not just as a concept, as a practice in our, in our life where we're earnestly in touch with God and listening to God and we, I think about what this says when it says praying for its growth. Growth isn't really even the goal. God's glory is the goal, right? When God's glory is the goal, growth is going to be a good, healthy byproduct. You know, it, it will grow because the motivation is that God could be glorified among us. Us being dethroned is the goal. If we can get ourselves out of the way, that would be pretty good. God being enthroned is the goal. That is growth. Growth can be about ego satisfaction. I think most pastors, if they were honest, would confess that one of the biggest struggles they have all the time is with themselves and their ego. And learning how to think about uh, Christian ministry differently, in a, in a way that doesn't see their own uh, self as the measure, so. Um, again this is probably confessing as much as it is preaching but church ought to come with certain degree of honesty wouldn't you say truth that ought to be an important element of what we're about When we think about growth sometimes growth uh, if it's the goal can become so much about the leader's ego and not about the the glory of God and about God being exalted among us so that we see God and and we see the solution through him. Come grow with us is not as biblically informed a creed as come glorify God with us is what I'm trying to say. Come glorify God with us. How else do we uh, share in the spiritual responsibilities of the church by being active in evangelism? The scripture talks about evangelism. The evangelism was another New Testament word that they stole from the Roman culture. Romans talked about good news. We we're heralding good news, but their good news wasn't the really good news. It was propaganda. God's uh, good news isn't propaganda. It's the reality that He loves us so much that He came to us in person and clothed Himself in a human body and lived a perfect life and became the sacrifice and the atonement for sin so that anybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and then he was powerfully resurrected from the dead and he, he lives to make intercession for, for us and he's enthroned at the right hand of, of God that Jesus is and so uh, Jesus said go into the byways and the hedges and compel them to come in. And he pictured the kingdom of God at times like a great banquet that everybody was invited to. And he he sends his servants out and says, hey, go tell everybody, come to my supper, come to my banquet, enjoy me, enjoy being with me. And, of course, the requirement was to be clothed in his righteousness. And so we're part of the the storytelling that happens. And probably most of us would say, boy, do I struggle with this. Carl F.H. Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. shared that before. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. People need this good news, even the people that act like they don't. I acted like I didn't need it when I really did need it as a younger person who was rejecting God. Man, it's hard for me to remember that. The, The people that even sometimes act like they don't care, don't need it, they do need it. They just need people to show up and tell them and at least we'll know whatever the outcome that we've been obedient to Christ and trying to tell this story. I heard a podcast this week I listened to a lot of podcasts and uh, David Platt was being interviewed and he was talking about in conversation with Russell Moore how mormons if you if you know any Mormons like a lot, a lot of their youth are sent on a mission for uh like after graduation and you know what the families do when they're sent out the families gather around them and celebrate and cheer for them and they create a very positive you know culture and experience before they send them out with this errant message you know we'd say it's it's errant it's not accurate history you know historically it's not the gospel that they're going out with but the the interesting thing is that the families you know support encourage them to go out and tell uh, you know tell their story and they the russell moore said is a religion that isn't worth trying to go out and persuade others is true worth holding on to yourself I thought that was the part of it that really impacted me. You know, we say we have the truth. We're in possession of the truth. And so I think about that, you know. If I'm holding on to this and not trying to persuade, it should compel me to persuade others of the same truth, right? If we believe this is the truth, that Jesus is exactly who he claimed that he he was. What's the difference between a hyper-Calvinist and any other Christian who never shares their faith. There is no difference, right? I've known people who, you might say, I don't even know what a hyper Calvinist is. Well, to give some uh, reference or understanding, that would be a person who believes uh, election means that you don't have to evangelize, that God just goes. Uh, I know who's predestined, and so we don't ever tell our story. Well, how you come to that conclusion, I don't know. And we should be turned off by the idea of uh, hyper-Calvinism or the idea that, you know, we don't have a part to play. But what's the difference in someone who has that doctrinal conviction and somebody that just never tells their story? It's it's the exact same thing. There is no difference. You know, so God uses us to tell our story. So, you know, we've already talked about prayer. What if we prayed for courage? I'm a chicken, too. I carry gospel tracts I have in the past when I was most effective. And sometimes I'm just like, would you read this? We just do whatever we have to do to try to get people connected. If you just invite people to church, I promise I will share the gospel faithfully. So a way we can be involved in this is just like inviting others to come hear the gospel proclaimed. But I think God uses us in telling his story that we do have a role in that. Churches that don't evangelize die, by the way. Churches whose uh, members don't actively share the gospel with others have amnesia. We've forgotten our own identity. How did you get here? Somebody told you the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how you got here. I'll share in the spiritual responsibilities of the church... No, I went one too far. By warmly welcoming those who visit. Welcoming others comes easier to people who realize that there is no other explanation for their lives than grace. The only explanation for my life is the grace of God. If we remember that we were received into God's family by faith, we'll never struggle with unhealthy territorialism. I used to travel to a lot of churches and have... You know, I'm old enough to have a lot of experience in church. And sometimes you'll see territorialism as an aspect or ownership, unhealthy ownership as a part of how people are at churches. Unwelcoming. We were joking about, you're in my seat, you know. Like, I don't really see that that much here, thank God. You know, we don't. I don't see it. But I think that the way that we keep away from having a possessiveness and, not, um, and a territorialism and unhealthy control is to remember that we got here by grace. That's how we ended up here. If we remember that, uh, think about for a newcomer what an anxiety-provoking you know, sense they'll have about just showing up here for the first time. Anybody that comes to the church has overcome anxiety to get here, to to start with, especially these days when it's not all that popular to go to church. Think about how much courage it takes and how few people are deciding to do it these days. How could we not extend ourselves warmly to anybody that comes? I'll give you a challenge, okay? Next week, we'll have a fifth Sunday dinner with chicken and whatever you bring that goes with chicken. Sit with somebody you don't know. Sit with somebody you don't know. You know what people are like, all of us? We, we gravitate to where we're comfortable. We're going to look out for the people we want to talk to, and we're going to go sit with those people. Well, if you're here to eat chicken next week, and I hope you are, and I hope you bring some kind of tasty dessert or whatever, this is my challenge. Sit down and make conversation with somebody that you don't know. Hopefully there's somebody that you don't know here to do that with. And it's a way of us thinking about those who end up here and how we can how we can help them. So while I was um, researching famous quotes about promises because we started out talking about promises, I noticed that there's a lot of cynicism among modern writers about the likelihood of people keeping their word when i was looking for quotes most of them were like eh promises are basically flimsy flimsy nothings that people don't really mean one writer says and i think if thoughts are worth a penny how much less promises must be worth especially the ones you're likely to break but that's not how it is with God's family. We said in the beginning, are we going to do this perfectly? No, we're not going to do it perfectly. But we know that promises are the gatekeepers of personal integrity. That's what a promise is it's the gatekeeper of your own integrity, it's the thing that you keep working back to and fleshing it out. A key to weakening spiritual community is to treat it lightly. That's one of the biggest problems I see in North American Christianity today is how lightly we treat Christian community, thereby weakening community. A way that we deepen and regard others is to keep working our promises out with each other. As we flesh out our commitment, we along with others are blessed. We're blessed. We're we're creating a environment of blessing. And God doesn't have a plan B, by the way. Brothers and sisters, we are his plan. We are his plan. Spirit-led, spirit-filled believers living faithfully for his glory in gospel outposts. That's God's plan. And he doesn't have another one. That's it. I want to pray for us and then we'll have a time of commitment together this morning and uh, we're going to talk about the second part of this next week and let's pray. God we're grateful that you show us in your word who you are and what we're to be like and we pray that you'll help us to uh, think deeply and uh, seriously about what it means to be part of spiritual community and to be light and to um, share in this responsibility of helping people to know who who you are and what you're like to get outside ourselves lord and and to live in a way that through us you you might be glorified and so we uh, thank you for people who have gone before us who have thought uh deeply about bible realities and truths that uh, they passed on to us and it became a blessing for us to live out to and uh, pray God that you'll help us now I pray for anyone that is uh, thinking through what it means to be a follower of Christ or God who is struggling under a heavy burden and or who has problems of their own that maybe nobody knows about I pray that you will give us grace for all those things and we need you so much and we trust you we pray it all in Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand with me?